I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I know you think they're sappy and bland. And you hated La La Land. But I gotta make you understand They can be profound and beautiful So I need you to like musicals Why the struggle? Why the strain? Why make trouble? Why make scenes? Why go against the grain? Why swim upstream? It ain't, it ain't, it ain't no use You're bound, you're bound, you're bound to lose What's done, what's done, what's done is done. That's the way the river runs, so why get wet? Why break a sweat? Why waste your precious breath? Everything's fine. Hi, everybody. Welcome to I Need You To Like Musicals. Uh, sorry if you can hear the rain on the roof. Listen to the rain on the roof. Go pit pity pat. There's been historic rain in Los Angeles in the last few weeks here. Lost the bumper on my car, driving in it when I should not have been. Bumper fell clean off. Gotta get a new bumper. This is the longest that we've ever gone without an episode here on I Need You to Like Musicals. Sorry about that. Uh, there is a reason for this. So uh, I alluded several months ago uh, to the fact that I was going through some life changes and some struggles. I am on the other side of these struggles right now. But it was a very sad and uh, very hard thing, and it went on for a long time. I'm not going to go fully into everything that happened. Uh, like uh, I'm not uh, going to be an emotional exhibitionist here. What I will tell you is part of what I went through was a good old-fashioned American breakup. I went through a breakup, and it's it was not a smooth one by any means. And I now live somewhere else. I have left... My house in Van Nuys, where all of the other episodes uh, were recorded, and I made a four-mile hero's journey to the city of North Hollywood, living in a gorgeous one-bedroom duplex with no shared walls, so I can be as loud as I need to be. And I'm all settled here and podcast ready. I've actually been ready, um, and in fact, I had the idea for doing this specific episode several months ago. Uh, while the unhappiness of all that was first kicking off. Uh, longtime listeners know that I've been threatening to talk about Hadestown for some time. And I thought it might be interesting, based uh, considering what I was going through, to pair Hadestown with the last five years and maybe have an episode about heartbreak and breakups and thereby begin to process my own. But to be honest, it all started to sound pretty heavy and difficult and I was still kind of trying to distract myself from my surrounding reality at the time so I I kicked that idea on down the road um, at one point I had the idea that I would do it from my empty house on the day before I moved out like the last thing I would move out would be my MacBook and my microphone and my keyboard and I would do a, hence the title here uh, son in an empty room that is of course a reference to a song by the weaker dance um, but, uh, yeah, I, 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 here I am, I'm doing it, and, uh, here we go. <laughs> there, there are two things to remember, by the way. If you're going through something like this, if this, uh, podcast is being listened to in the future, or if you, uh, have been through something like this, or you're about to go through something like this, there's two things to remember. Number one, 
Everybody goes through this. Everybody on the planet with any kind of heart goes through this. And number two, it's not forever, even though it really, really feels like it's forever. By God, it isn't. Do not succumb to despair. Good times are right around the corner. So anyway, um... <laughs> damn it. I'm deep into this thing now, and like I said, I'm sort of trying to emerge on the other end of it. I'm finding that it does get easier to look forward to new possibilities in life now, but lately, you know, uh, I've had been having moments of regression and sadness and that's only natural because it's a process and you just got to go through it you can't kick it down the road and sweet jesus mother of god re-watching these fucking musicals for the podcast this past week has been like squeezing the fucking lemon mostly hadestown me watching hadestown was a sad sight to behold i was bridget jones on new year's eve here on my couch watching that thing. Um, I want to make a disclaimer about crying. So uh, I don't want this to be like a Mark Marin situation. I want to sort of try to ride a line here where I do relate these musicals to my life and my thoughts and what I'm going through because I do think that has value. Relating our experiences and feeling seen by others is one of the key features of being a human being. But I also don't want to be an emotional exhibitionist, like I said. And again, I'm, I'm not going to get specific about details. And I'm not going to sit here and cry on mic. Or at least it's not my objective to sit here and cry. Longtime listeners will remember the Sunday in the Park with George debacle. Uh, where I got choked up on mic. And maybe I'm projecting when I say this. But there's a thing that happens with men when they spend their youth maybe not necessarily crying very often or maybe just crying on special occasions uh that's what i kind of did especially after i quit drinking quit drinking very young but maybe when they get to be around 35 things start to make them cry uh my father was kind of an over-the-top hyperbolic example of this he uh never never ever cried but then he got parkinson's disease and uh the medicine the dopamine medication uh he started to cry like all the time uh, first time I noticed it was when he was studying. He was helping me study for a history test. And uh, he, he was reading aloud about Stalingrad and started crying about that. Um, and, you know, I never really did cry at works of art until way later in life. I went and saw Rent with my high school friends when I was 15 years old. And, yeah, I, I was moved by it, but I didn't cry. And I wanted to. And I was worried there was something wrong with me. Like, all my friends were crying their eyes out. I think it is all right to cry. Uh, you know, free to be you and me taught us that in 1972. But I do think that there's something to be said for not being so quick to have a personal, visceral, human experience in front of a digital audience. And a lot of people these days do this because everybody in the world has their own uh, channel of some sort on some kind of thing. Being open is great. And, you know, you're only as sick as your secrets. Uh, but there is such a thing as privacy. I definitely want to protect the privacy of my ex here, which is mostly why I'm not telling the entire story of what happened. Also because it's not relevant to the task at hand. But also, I, I don't want to be self-indulgent and cry my eyes out on my podcast. I, I don't know if it'll happen. Uh, I mean, I, like I said, watching Town, there was extreme crying. Uh, heavy, heavy, heavy crying. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know if I'll pause things or cut it out uh, but I feel at the moment like I'll be fine <laughs> and if Town or the last five years or any other piece of art moves you but you don't cry when you see them 
and you happen to be a man under the age of 35, don't worry. You're probably not a sociopath. You just need a little bit of time. So let's get into the shows. The shows, of course, are Hades Town and The Last Five Years. It's the Heartbreak episode. We are going to start with The Last Five Years here. Uh, the Last Five Years, I think, was easier for me to handle. I don't know if it was because of the day that I embarked upon it. I don't know if the fact it's like maybe less relevant to my current life and it's like young people and it's more naturalistic. I don't know. But uh, I got through it fine. Or maybe just I've heard it enough times because I've been listening to it for nigh on 20 years. So the thing about the last five years is it's not really a musical. You could call it a song cycle or whatever the fuck you want to call it. I've seen it on stage. I've seen the film. They're fine. But what it really needs to be is a soundtrack. It needs to be an album. And it already is. So we're kind of done with the last five years. No need to make another soundtrack with new people. The original soundtrack from 2002 with um, Sherry Renee Scott and Norbert Leo Butts. That's kind of the way to go with this. I would not really advise you to watch the movie or even really go see it on a stage if it comes to your town. I would uh, just sort of read a paragraph about it on Wikipedia so you know the general conceit and then just put it in your AirPods, baby. That's the way to go. Uh, I could be wrong, I often am, but this seemed at the time that it came out, and I heard it maybe one or two years later, that it was the invention of a brand new style of musical theater, that neo-pop musical theater thing, with the piano and the combo and the emotional strings and the feelings. It's, it's really an amalgam of other things, of other forms of pop music and uh, earlier musical theater. Uh, but it's the first one that did it like this, it's oft imitated. This is, of course, written by Jason Robert Brown. We've dealt with him before. He made Parade. Uh, love Parade. Parade is high up on my list of favorite non-Sontheim shows. He made Parade while he was in his 20s, which is pretty fucking impressive because Parade is so good. And then out of nowhere, in 2002, the year that Chris uh, graduates high school, the, here comes this weird fucking song cycle thing. The last five years. Uh, I'm going to briefly explain the conceit of this. Uh, most of us know already. Some of us are new to the situation. But the last five years is very simple. It's uh, really just a lot of songs in a row without a book of any kind. Uh, it's uh, two people. It's a two-person show, two actors, a man and a woman. And it's the story of their five-year relationship and marriage and breakup. Uh, they take turns being alone on stage singing solos. That's important. Uh, each song is a soliloquy of sorts. Sometimes it's an internal monologue. Sometimes it's one side of a conversation with their partner or talking to somebody else. Um, but the woman, Kathy Hyatt, is telling the story backwards. Her first song is uh, well, she's been broken up with. And then her last song is her new relationship energy and uh, feeling excited about this new thing. Whereas Jamie Wellerstein, the man, starts uh, being excited about a new relationship and then ends with uh, the sort of grim, sad uh, ending of it. Uh, what's amazing, what's very cool, is right in the middle of the show, they are on stage together once during a beautiful love song and they sing in harmony and it's like they're meeting in the middle. But then they keep on drifting, one into the past and one into the future. 
Uh, when we covered Jason Robert Brown, we did touch on the idea that he is maybe not such a nice person, although he is a very talented composer and songwriter. When this show initially premiered in Chicago in 2001, JRB, which we'll call him that as a shorthand here, he denied that the show was autobiographical, that it was about his own life. There were rumors, because he was recently divorced, and he, like the male character in the show, had early success in his 20s with Parade. Uh, of course, it's a book author in the in the last five years. In an interview, J.R.B. says uh, he denied. He said, uh, everything I write comes from my life, but I'm not narcissistic or sadistic enough to make the contents of my marriage a matter of public record. You know what I mean? That wasn't the aim of the piece. I think in writing a show about a couple that fall apart, I was hoping that I'd maybe be able to come to terms with that in my own life, but I wasn't going to come to terms with it by writing something about me. Now... Unfortunately for JRB, once it's time to bring the show to Broadway after the Chicago uh, soft opening, his ex-wife, Teresa O'Neill, sues him for violating the non-disparagement and non-disclosure agreements in their divorce settlement. Because the show is apparently way too close to what actually happened between them. So in order to get to Broadway, he's got to cut a song called I Could Be In Love With Someone Like You, and he has to remove all references to the female character being Irish Catholic. She did not like the mention of her Irishness and her Catholicism. It's gotta suck to be in that woman's position, right? Uh, you know, there's a lot of examples of this, I guess. Well, you know, make a work of art about it, lady, if you don't like it. I, it's interesting to me that J.R.B. somehow wrote an autobiographical... Uh, the, the musical is autobiographical. Like, he, he obviously was wrong or lying or in denial when he said that. But he somehow wrote something autobiographical in which he is a highly unlikable character and his ex-wife comes out looking pretty sympathetic. So, yeah. And, I mean, the rest of it kind of just stands on its own. You know, it was... They, they, they did it. It was directed by Daisy Prince, daughter of Her uh, Hal Prince, and... You know, it was good. It was kind of... I, I feel like it was groundbreaking. I feel like it uh, deserves a lot of credit. They did make it into a movie in the mid-2010s. It's not very good. It was written, dire uh, written and directed by somebody called Richard La Gravanese, who uh, I looked him up. Apparently he wrote the screenplay to The Fisher King in the 80s, which is a great movie. I'm not sure what happened here. I think it's because it's a doomed idea. Uh, the actual concrete details of Jamie and Kathy's relationship and marriage are run-of-the-mill and boring. Uh, it's a normal people's relationship, and normal people's relationships and marriages are boring. <laughs> I mean, if anything, their reflections on what happened and their internal dialogue with themselves, or internal monologues, rather, th that's what's interesting. And it's a little better on stage because they, they're not in each other's scenes. They, they do a park and bark. Uh, which is a term that I recently learned. I guess I was late to the party on the park and bark. I learned that doing children's theater and working with somebody that told me about the term park and bark. Anyway, the movie stars Anna Kendrick and Jeremy Jordan. <clears throat> um, so uh, let's talk about it. I, I've done something a little bit different here today. Because this is such um, an album and less of a musical, and it really is song, 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 and each song is its own scene, uh, I have ranked the songs, the 14 songs in the last five years. As I talk about them, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to uh, talk about them obviously in chronological order. We're going to go through the show, but I'm going to tell you each song's ranking, <laughs> according to me. 
Uh, th that never really goes well, I've noticed. You you tend to hate the person that ranks things, especially if you like those things, because you always think they're wrong. So if, uh, get ready to hate me here. The score starts with such an unassuming little piano waltz, but then it transitions into something crazy beautiful, and it's a song called Still Hurting, the fourth best song in the show. Number four. And this is the song that Kathy sings after she's been left. Jamie is over and Jamie is gone. And, you know, there are lines in this song, like, um, run away, like it's simple, like it's right. And that's just really speaks to the experience of a breakup of just, you know, how the, how can you do this? Like, like, it's just a simple thing to do when it's the most unnatural, wrong feeling thing ever. I like Anna Kendrick a lot. Um, I know she, she seems to be polarizing. There are people who hate Anna Kendrick. I like her. I've liked her ever since Up in the Air. I, I think that she's fun and talented. The filming of this song in the movie, Still Hurting, is the first sign of trouble. Because yeah, this apartment, this woman, all of her framed pictures, they're, they're too glamorous. And even her grease, her, sorry, her grief, even her grief is like glossy. Hashtag glossy grief. Maybe this is a gender difference, but I, I, I find it hard to imagine, like, uh, and I know because I've gone through it myself recently, like, would you really sit at a desk with a box of tissues and a stoic look on your face or, or like, sit on the floor in front of your couch with the lights off? Um, I don't know. Maybe people grieve in different ways. I kind of just sort of uh, loudly cry or uh, distract myself. I don't sit uh, and like have a sad wallpaper around me. Anyway, but it's a beautiful song. It's a great way to start the show. Beautifully orchestrated with the strings. The second song is called Shiksa Goddess, which I have ranked as number two, the second best song in the show. I think it was my favorite song when I was younger, when I got into the show, but probably just because I it was really fun to play and sing. It's got that boom, bap, boo, bap, boo, bap, boo, boo, da, do, do, da, do, the cool thing about the soundtrack is that the two singers have pretty non-traditional voices. Sherry Renee Scott and Norbert Leo Butts. You kind of know them when you hear them. Uh, and that, obviously that's a weird name. Let's acknowledge that Norbert Leo Butts is a weird name. Uh, and a weird voice. He played the lead in the musical Big Fish, which is a crummy musical, if you ask me. Um, I auditioned for it a few years back, and so I got to know it a little bit, and I thought it kind of sucked. And the, I don't like Andrew Lippa in general. We'll talk about the Wild Party at some point. You can all yell at me about that. Yeah, I don't like the Wild Party. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's just a song about... Uh, that. This, by the way, is the song that the lawsuit made them change. This was the one that he was... It was about a, a Jewish man uh, having a fetish for an Irish Catholic woman. And they changed it to just a guy... Uh, uh, oh, I'm breaking my mother's heart. I'm in love with a shiksa, which is a non-Jewish <laughs> lady. Uh, they made it very bad in the movie. The, they, they literalized it. Uh, and this is a problem, really, with putting this on film at all. And he had it, he, they had him sing it to her. He sang it to Anna Kendrick while, like, when he's about to have sex with her. <laughs> like, he keeps stopping the sex to tell her how his mother may or may not feel about the sex they're going to have or his like of her. Because the song, uh, like, you know, the, most of these songs are internal monologues. This is one of them. This should just be him talking to himself. And it's hard to do that in a film, I guess. 
And, you know, I mean, thank God by the second verse they did a presentational thing with all the Jewish, when he lists them, uh, Erica Schwartz and Danica Weitz and the Handelman twins. I've been waiting through Heather Greenland. Everything. He, like, goes through a dark void and walks around with all these Jewish girls. Uh, here's a theory. I have a theory, everybody. Ready for my theory? <laughs> There's a cliche in musical theater that men who do musicals, uh, actors, male musical theater actors, when they portray heterosexual characters in romantic relationships, uh, sometimes it's not believable because they seem gay. Uh, paradoxically, this seems to have spread to straight musical theater actors. Like, even these days, I think the norms of musical theater are so gay that straight actors seem gay in their mannerisms. Uh, you know, uh, like a Lin-Manuel Miranda is a good example of this, and there are a few others that I can't pull at the moment. Jeremy Jordan in this, uh, I guess that's why I brought it up, is one of those. He does, not, he does seem like her gay best friend, and maybe that is the straight woman's dream, uh, to, you know, uh, hang out with your gay best friend, but you generally have him be in love with you, and you're in love with him the whole time. It's probably offensive. And maybe this is my problem, growing up in the cruelness of the 1990s, and you know, being afraid of being called gay or seeming gay. I, I like the idea of a world where straight guys can be flamboyant and there's no such thing as gaydar. Hell, I'm sure all kinds of people thought I was gay and I'm probably an example of this, so. Um, but, uh, you know, tell me in the comments if you think I'm right about that. See, I'm smiling is the next song. I've ranked See I'm Smiling at number three. I think this is one of the better Kathy songs. Um, with the hindsight of being 40 years old, which is what I am, it seems this song seems to be a point. Uh, and just to briefly describe it to newcomers, See I'm Smiling is this heartbreaking song where Kathy's actually talking to Jamie. And she's talking about, uh, you know, we both can see what could be better. I'll own when I was wrong, when all we've had to go through. It's towards the end of a relationship, you're trying to fix it. But then by the end of it, she finds out that he is not in town for as long as she thought he was and that he's not going to see the show that she's in. And she kind of unloads on him and gets her feelings really hurt and cries. Um, and, you know, hearing this song now, it seems like a song about the pointless circular conversations that you have about fixing your relationship when you're in your 20s and hell maybe even your 30s and here's another theory guys well, this is going to be a theory heavy episode nothing uh nothing changes nothing changes <laughs> nothing changes anyhow this sounds cynical at first glance really cynical and it could be me projecting and it could be colored by my recent experiences but i think that the sad truth is that and it could be hard to admit it is that the first fight that you have with a partner is the exact same fight you're going to have as your last fight with that partner and every fight in the between is going to be that same fight too it can feel like you're working on things because and the reason it feels that way is because you really want to be working on things and maybe they do too or, you know, uh, you, but the, the truth is you might not be, or the other person might not be, or maybe you're both working but not in the same direction. You can learn tools to minimize harm and get through the whole thing a little less scathed, the fights, whatever, but it's going to be the same fight forever <laughs> with a few details switched out and scrambled here and there. You can just lesser the, you can lessen the degrees of it, but it's the same fight. So the best you can do is you find... Somebody 
that you fight with in a way that you can tolerate. Someone you, a forever fight you can live with and a person you can tolerate having that fight with. And someone who at least doesn't want to fight, for Christ's sake. That's important. You want that. That's something you want. Jamie Wellerstein is a prick. That is the PR problem of this show. That is the biggest problem. That's the glaring problem. Now, the character goes from the age of 23 to 28, which I guess is when you're supposed to be a bit selfish. And I'm sure having early success in the way that he did, the character, I mean, at 20, uh, all this and more before 24, that can be confusing and that can make you act in a certain kind of way. But yeah, I don't like him. And it's unclear whether I'm supposed to like him, I guess. I was, uh, you know, maybe, what, 19, 20 years old when I first heard this show. And I was 100% on fucking Kathy's side. I talked to my friend, like my long, long time friend, and she said that, no, I think that Kathy is a shrewish asshole and I'm on Jamie's side. And I thought that was strange. And listening to it now, I should ask this friend if she still agrees with this because we are still friends. But it seems insane to be on Jamie's side. Jamie sucks. Jamie's a dick. Um... The See, I'm Smiling in uh, the movie is maybe the first one that works well because it's the first song that is a dialogue. Uh, of course, on the album and on stage, it is a one-sided dialogue. It's Kathy talking to Jamie, but he's not there. And so they had to add actual things because she does respond to him. Like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Um, and that's fine. It, it's, it's actually pretty good. This is uh, one of the high points of the movie. The next song, Moving Too Fast, I have ranked as number 11 out of 14. It's a f okay song. It sounds a lot like a mid-2000s New York City middle-class person song. Uh, I guess maybe because it reminds me of the Will and Grace theme. And maybe it reminds me of the film Serendipity for some goddamn reason. Just the sort of uh, whatever of it. The b b busy <laughs> blues piano. Um, he, in that song, and it's all about Jamie saying, oh, wow, I'm getting so successful and this relationship is going so well uh, this is moving too fast but also he likes it <laughs> and he's but he says these lines like um some people can't get success with their art some people never feel love in their heart some people can't tell the two things apart but i keep rolling on that's a pretty lame thing to say <laughs> And again, uh, if it's an internal monologue, that's fine. But in the movie, he sings it to Kathy, which, dude, don't say that out loud. <laughs> Come on. That is uh, a little braggy. It's followed by a song called A Part of That, which I have ranked as number 12. Which, again, I mean, I, that's 12 out of 14, and it's still a pretty decent song, which is, speaks to the strength of these songs. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's good. I guess what's interesting about it is it's a song where Kathy is lying to herself. You know, she's saying, um, you know, I follow in his stride. Uh, instead of side by side, I take his cue. And, uh, you know, he's got all the success and she's kind of his wife at that point. And um, what's cool about this is um, what Jason Robert Brown does. And it's obvious, I think he does this consciously. Of course he does. Um, he does something that I feel like I did in my songwriting, but I did unconsciously where there were parts times in my life where I wrote songs where I was lying to myself. And while I was writing the song, I didn't know it. But then if I listen back to the tracks, I see, I hear clues 
Uh, I wrote a song called A Grump's Affirmation and Wishlist off of uh, my album Please in 2011. And uh, there's a refrain at the end of that song. I won't get into what it is or what that means or anything. I, I, the thing I sung over and over again at the end of that song, and then just a little sort of uh, downward slide in pitch of the organ at the very end that I realized now was like, yeah, that was a subconscious clue to myself that that was a lie. That refrain was a lie. And there's one here in this song. Because she's saying like, I'm a part of that, I'm a part of that, I'm a part of that, aren't I? I'm a part of that, I'm a part of that, I'm a part of that. And then it closes with the dun, 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 which is the still hurting theme, which is sort of tells us that, yeah, no, this is heading in the wrong direction. This is heading towards heartbreak. You're pissing up a rope here, Kathy. Uh, a friend of mine uh, <laughs> used to make fun of the, there's a line in this song where she goes, uh, handful after handful of Doritos. And he used to say, that's what makes it uh, groundbreaking and contemporary. The inclusion of Doritos. Doritos. Now, the next song is the Shmuel song, which is wildly considered to be the low point of the score, everyone's least favorite song, and that is the truth, which is why I have it ranked as number 14. That should not be skeptical at all. Um, go ahead and call me an anti-Semite. It's just because it's a weird, long song uh, that is bad. Uh, I have never dated a writer, but I am skeptical of this idea that when you date a writer, they want to tell you stories all the time <laughs> and hop around the apartment telling you a story, playing all the different parts. Um, also, the message to her through this song, he's telling a story of Shmuel and from Klimovich, uh, a tailor, and it's supposed to inspire her to fucking, I guess, try harder at having a career or, I don't know, stop temping and go and be happy. But it's, it's, it's condescending. Like, hey, yeah, just get really famous like I did. Uh, you can do it. What's it? Don't, uh, don't worry. Did you ever think about just maybe getting really famous and succeeding at this thing you're trying at? Like, what do you think she's fucking doing? They don't ever suggest in the show that Kathy is sitting on her ass. She's climbing uphill, right? She's going to auditions. She's trying. She's doing... <laughs> like, it'd be one thing if Kathy was sitting around at home all day reading magazines or fucking, you know, getting high. But no, she's wants to be an actor and it's hard to be an actor and get success um the next song is uh summer in ohio another kathy song i have this ranked as number one i think it's the best song in the show on the album it's a really exciting song um and it really goes on a journey it really paints a picture and there's a familiar sort of uh chorus line solipsism here where it's a musical theater song about the hearts and minds of somebody doing musical theater <clears throat> but um I like the way that it digs in. The specific predicament of doing shitty out-of-town regional musicals, which I've done, uh, but you're doing it because it's a thing you love, but at the same time, you're a person with a life and somebody back home, and it's, uh, it's, it's her letter to him. It's her letter to Jamie while she's in Ohio doing, uh, doing uh, some sh bad theater. And um, there's an interesting thing in the movie. Like They make a couple little changes. Uh, they changed the borders to Target because, you know, borders wasn't around anymore. I saw your book at a Target in Kentucky. But they kept in the word midget. A uh, gay midget named Carl playing Tevya and Porgy. I feel like uh, maybe you shouldn't say midget. Maybe I should stop saying midget. 
after that, we get uh, that song that I told you about earlier where they meet on stage for the first time, They're, where they sing in harmony uh, and sing together on the song for the only time. That song is called The Next Ten Minutes. It is a gorgeous song. I have it ranked as number six. Um, I have to admit, I did not get the effect in the song until way later. And then I felt embarrassed for not getting it. Uh, the meeting in the middle thing. And it's like, it. of course, the, the opening lines of the song are just Jamie uh, saying, no, that one's Jerry Seinfeld. That one's John Lennon there. And then uh, they sing this love song together. And then he leaves the stage at the very end after they've sung in harmony. And she goes, is that one John Lennon? And it's like, oh, okay. They, they passed each other. Um, it's very, it's, it's, it's very smart and very, uh, effect it's effective. Oh, good. It's pretty good. <laughs> um, so there you go. If I would have cried watching this or talking about it, it would have been right there. Didn't happen. So, huh. Fuck you, sadness. Didn't get me that time. Next, we have a song, uh, that's a little duo, a little slash song slash song situation. Um, a Miracle Would Happen slash When You Come Home to Me. I have this ranked as number seven. Um, let me give you some advice. If you want to really bum out your girlfriend and you're a piano player and a singer, go ahead and sit at the piano and play this song and sing it with an earshot of her. Uh, this song uh, tends to bum the ladies out because it's a song about, uh, uh, you know, being tempted to cheat. And yeah, okay, so yeah, Jamie is a prick. He, we have established that. Jamie is not nice. But the, I think what's interesting about this song, what makes it valid and what makes it good, is that it's a person talking to himself or like a person in a confessional about, uh, talking about the shitty thoughts that he's having. Um, and it's the worst part of the movie when they film this because, you know, Jamie is doing shots and like holding court with his buddies and he's telling them this. Like it's something to brag, like he's sort of bragging about it or laughing about it. And I think, to, you know, Jamie is not that guy on any level. Like he's a dick. Um, like in a sense, Jamie might be more likable as a character if, you know, in the movie he did get really drunk and admitted all of this to someone with some level of sadness. But in the movie they make it like, you know, he they, they portray Jamie as this metrosexual middle-class dickhead who wears crisp Oxford shirts all the time and is all fucking well-shorn. And that vibe is not in the text of the song. Like, the song sounds like somebody suffering. It's somebody who is uh, has gained success and is getting female attention and he really wishes he wasn't attracted to the women that are not his wife. And he keeps saying, but it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. I mean, I'm happy. Like, it's somebody he's trying to talk himself, you know, off, sort of off the ledge with it. Um, you know, and women don't like this song for obvious reasons. And they don't like it when their partners uh, sing it and play it on the piano. Uh, I've tested this uh, multiple times because I've been playing and singing this song since uh, 2003. Um, she sings this little when, uh, when you come home to me section and then it gets to, uh, man, the, I'll be there soon, Kathy. I'll finish up this chapter and be out the door. That's, it's pretty fucking dark. That part of the song. And this is another moment where the music exposes the character's lie. This is Jamie lying to himself. And that's tricky because in the movie, and I know I'm talking a lot about the movie. And like I, I, I do like the last, the last five years. And so I, 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 overall, I need you to like the last five years. I do not need you to see the movie because it's bad. Um, in the movie, uh, the, he really is, cause he's saying, Oh, uh, I, I want to come to your show. I, I just, I, I'm going to be there. 
I just have to finish this fucking work. And in the movie, it kind of seems like he really is finishing that fucking work. But in the show, um, he's at a bar and he's like lying. He's sitting there drinking and saying, oh, I'll be there when fucking Random House stops calling. And that's dark. It's dark. They also add unnecessary drums to this song and Shiksa Goddess in the movie, which is stupid. What's so cool about the orchestration here, one of the coolest features of it is the driving rhythm guitar. And that's all you need. Uh, the drums make it sound packaged and produced. But uh, the piano and the rhythm guitar is a really nice effect. Um, and again, I think it really defined a genre in musicals. The movie also cuts out F-words. I don't understand why. Uh, and climbing up hill, they t oh, yeah they take a shot at Russell Crowe in the movie. The original line is, uh, why am I working so hard? These are the people who cast Linda Blair in a musical. And uh, they changed that to Russell Crowe. These are the people who cast Russell Crowe in a musical. Um, because Russell Crowe, of course, was not good in the musical Lame is Rob. Uh, again, this song is a really good illustration of what it seems to have felt like to be a musical theater performer on the grind in New York City in the 2000s. It's a, it's a really good... Uh, that's Musicals are great when they do that, when they get a snapshot of life in a way that uh, could only be expressed, expressed through a song in a musical. So I have this ranked as number nine. Um, I do have to call the lyrics police to the scene. Excuse me, officers. Yeah, so here we go. Um... I will not be the girl in the sensible shoes pushing burgers and beer nuts and missing the clues. All right. I, the, the, why? Like, I, I, it's not that bad. I don't know what, but the, it's the pushing that bothers me. I don't know. Can you just have said serving? It's just weird. To, it, 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 it just rings wrong to me to be like, yeah, you're a fucking beer nut pusher. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, one of the best things about the album is you don't have to hear that shitty story that Jamie wrote and that he reads aloud about the swimming because it's like, uh, George, uh, with his laser art in Sunday where, uh, it's like, why don't we just, you know, have the premise here that Jamie is talented and don't show us that he's not talented by having us hear him read a story aloud that he wrote that is really mediocre and Sounds like it was written by somebody in a, you know, undergraduate writing class. And um, if I didn't believe in you, so that's that's a fucked up song. If I didn't believe in you, it's like a song sung mid-fight in the middle of a relationship fight. And in the movie, they added an actual fight, like they literalized that, but. Like, all of the dialogue that they add is naturalistic and feels more like an actual movie. But in this one, they do a weird thing where it's not at all how human beings would actually fight with each other. Because it's two people literally talking at the same time, but for a while. Like, 15 to 20 seconds. And that doesn't happen. Like, if you notice that somebody is just saying things while you're saying things, I think presumably at least one of you might stop talking. And either leave or say, shut the fuck up. Or, like, I don't know. But... Don't just keep saying what you're saying while somebody else is saying something. Um, maybe for a minute, like you know, a few seconds, but whatever. It's not a huge point. If I didn't believe of you, uh, if I didn't believe in you, I have this ranked as number eight. It has the. Um, it's also very smart. It has the still hurting theme embedded in it in the chords. 
I think it's a really good song, but it's not good because the character is saying or doing anything that's sympathetic or worthy. He isn't. And it's easy to make the mistake here and think that the song is functioning as a working justification for Jamie and what he's asking her to do. He wants her to go to the party uh, with him. And her whole thing is like, you know, I don't want to keep going to these parties with you where you're the center of attention and I'm your wife, uh, you know. And um, so it's not actually about, you know, where Jamie is coming from. The song is a seduction by a selfish prick. Um, he doesn't want to defuse the situation. He doesn't want, I mean, he wants to defuse the situation, but he doesn't want to make her feel better or improve their relationship on any level. He wants her to go with him to a fucking publishing party that she doesn't want to go to and shouldn't have to go to. Like, Kathy's position on not going, wanting to go to that party is, you know, valid. <laughs> he, she has every right to not want to go to that party. And he almost talks her into it or thinks that he does at one point. I mean, my favorite line in that song, my favorite section is the bridge. Um, where it kind of swells because he sings like a, don't we get to be happy, Kathy? And it's like, uh, it's it's uncanny because they're in that stage of the relationship where you you start to wonder if the juice is worth the squeeze and are we going to keep having heart-wrenching conversations and are these conversations going to outnumber the moments of joy of each other's company? And I think that's kind of what Jamie is asking here. And it's kind of, like I said, this is all at a seduction to get her to go to the bar, to the party with him. But his feelings get revealed momentarily here. And uh, at the end of this bridge, he says something pretty fucked up. And uh, you all know what it is. He sings, I will not fail so you can be comfortable, Kathy. I will not lose because you can't win. This is one of the few moments that the movie gets right and it actually deepens it a bit. Because when you hear it in the song, it's it's cr like it's a cruel thing to say and it seems to come out of nowhere because he's the only one uh, talking or singing, obviously, but she's not there. Uh, and then the movie, it's sort of, they go room to room and she's listening and then not listening and sort of walking away, cold shouldering. And so he's, uh, the fight is escalating when he says this and so he's getting worked up and then he says something cruel and so it just it feels a little bit more realistic and you see her face when he says it and Jeremy Jordan is a bad actor I'm sorry I mean whatever he's, he's a musical theater kid and that doesn't mean you're necessarily a bad actor but um, you know Anna Kendrick is an actor who sings well and he's uh, you know he's a musical theater kid that maybe is too big for the the screen <laughs> Um but her acting during this song is really good. It's really good. I, it, it, it got me for a moment. Um, then we go back to the past. We're getting further and further away from each other here. Um, she sings, I can do better. I have that ranked as number 10. And this is her kind of her NRE song, the new relationship energy song. I learned that term from the TV show Transparent. And, uh, you know, it's kind of just... Uh, the way that it reads to me, this song, is it's like when you're on, it's the date that you go on with somebody after you've decided that you like them and you want them around. And it's kind of the date where you tell them the story of you, in a sense. Um, 
or whatever, you know, even if it's a managed story, you know, to not hide, to get, you know, be that revelatory. It's just like, this is, you know, this is who I am and this is what I went through. And so, you know, it's, it feels very real. Um, and, you know, the movie fucked it up. <laughs> the movie did it badly. They, they did, they made it a road trip, um, which maybe it's supposed to be that because she does say, when we get to my house. But she, she breaks out a yearbook in the car which is stupid like don't you know why would you show her him pictures from your why do you have your yearbook in the car and do you not have a phone with pictures on it it's it's not a period piece right like this is not supposed to be set in the mid 90s when jason robert brown's actual marriage was happening it seems to be a present day thing she's skyping with him when she's in ohio so yeah show him the pictures on your fucking phone and then she keeps trying to show him pictures and then like like nope watch the road but then keeps fucking with him while he's driving and then they pull over and make out at one point uh and then when they arrive at her childhood home they're parked outside she asks him to move in with her in a convertible and they're they're right in front of the house and the parents come outside like trying to say hi her, her behavior in this song is a little uh, out of control. Uh, come on, Kathy. Knock it off. Uh, the song after this is uh, Nobody Needs to Know. Song is a bummer. Uh, obviously, because he's cheating. I have it ranked as second to worst. Uh, 13. And it's not even really a bad song. It's a bit little repetitive with the descending uh, note on the chord. Uh, and you know, there's some creepiness to it where it's a, he's singing to, um, the woman that he's fucking, uh, the new, the woman he's cheating on his wife with. It's very creepy that he calls her kid. (laughs) And it's right there in the first line. Hey kid, good morning. You look like an angel. Uh, sound off ladies. Do you like it when, uh, you sleep with a guy and the next morning he says, Hey kid. (laughs) especially like here's a better question especially when he's a kid more or less if he's under 30 this is also kind of the first time in the lyrics uh, at least where jrb jason robert brown he calls attention to himself as a lyricist because he waxes poetic um with those that weird sexual metaphor which is kind of it's just unpleasant and i i get that the song is supposed to be unpleasant but he goes, uh, I grip and she grips and faster we're sliding, sliding and spilling. And what can I do? Come back to bed, kid. Take me inside you. <laughs> I promise. I won't lie to you. Oh, man. I Saying it out loud, I, yeah, I feel like I just did a penthouse story. It's gross. It's not cool. I, again, ladies, sound off. Do, do you want someone, a guy to say... Take me inside you. Maybe you do. I don't know. I'm not a lady. One of the good lines in the song, or the, you know, was he says, uh, no one will understand. He's like, it's over. It's done. No one will understand. So it's like he's, he momentary, he's like, we got to break this off because no one will under. Like, that's the concern. The concern is not like this will fund it like radically hurt my partner this will destroy them and this is a betrayal uh that is an awful thing to do it's the it's the the uh the the blowback the pr blowback from the people in his life and maybe even the media because he's famous on some level jamie sucks 
And yeah, so he's cheating. Um, I don't cheat. Um, I haven't cheated since I got sober at the age of 23, which is, uh, you know, and I did a couple times before that when I was like 19 or 20. And, uh, you know, it's easy to not cheat when you're sober. So I don't want to get up on my high horse about that. Uh, but also, whatever, if someone wants to be, a, everybody agrees to a polyamorous relationship, great. But uh, if you're with somebody and it would make you very sad to think of them cheating, then if you cheat, then you're doing something uh, really wrong. And that's what Jamie does. We do not like Jamie. And it seems like Jamie doesn't like Jamie because Jamie wrote this. The movie makes a dumb mistake here too on uh, Nobody Needs to Know. Um, he makes it several women, or sorry, the movie <laughs> is not a man with a he pronoun. The movie makes Jamie, uh, he's sleeping with several women throughout this song. I think it's way more interesting if uh, Jamie is just this emotional wreck that docks himself with someone else and genuinely believes that he loves this other person uh, and that she loves him, but it's really only happening. He's really only found somebody new because A, Kathy is onto his bullshit and no longer impressed by it, and B, Kathy has revealed herself to be a person with needs of her own that's not just going to be his cheerleader. Jeremy Jordan is a bad actor and he ruins this, but, um, you know, and this is borne out with the final lines of the song, which are, since I have to be in love with someone, since I need to be in love with someone, maybe I could be in love with someone like you. And that's dark. It's a little on the nose that he comes out and says it, but, you know, this is a musical. Sometimes you got to hit people over the fucking head with a hammer. Jamie should go to Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. Slaw for short. Um, I recommend he go to that meeting. May have a good time there. Or probably wouldn't have a good time, but maybe, you know, maybe everyone else around him would have a better time that uh, he infects. The final song of the show is more of a sequence. It's two songs mashed together. Uh, Goodbye Until Tomorrow slash I Could Never Rescue You. I have this song as number five. Uh, this song gets points for catchiness because it's a it's a bop, as the kids say, and it's really just a it's a good finale. And it has a sort of merrily we roll along esque effect of bittersweetness, because it is a hopeful song, but the audience carries the tragic knowledge of what actually happened. And just like merrily we roll along, Kathy's story has moved backwards. We saw her go from despair to hope. And uh, abandon hope, all ye who want to be Kathy, because Kathy is going to be still hurting by the end of this thing. And so it makes us uh, squeeze out a few tears if we see her uh, with us hope. Goodbye until tomorrow. Goodbye. Do, 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 do. And that's like, you know, again, it's, that's like maybe that is the date where you realize that you do like this person. That's where you feel that it's the moment of spark. It's her Shiksa goddess, but it happened at the end instead of the beginning for her. So yeah, it's funny. Like I said, that Kathy is the clear hero of this story and that Jamie wrote the story. If you reversed the timeline, right? Like if you had Jamie go backwards and Kathy go forward, you would have to start with Jamie. Like we would meet Jamie as somebody cheating. Like first we would hear him write a really backhanded fucking note about why they're breaking up and then see him fucking someone else and then see him tr manipulating her into going to a fancy party with him and then see him like complain that he wants to fuck other people. Like, would we really care at all about Jamie by the time we hit the next 10 minutes song? We wouldn't. So, uh, 
But if I, I, I think that Kathy would come out looking like a rose either way. I mean, Kathy, of course, made a mistake, but I think we end up loving her even more for that because, you know, it's human and we all make mistakes as humans. And this is catharsis. There is a nice moment at the end of the film. I'll give him a little bit of credit here. Um, the movie version, uh, he's... I have to imagine if you saw this on film for the first time and you didn't know the conceit of it, you might be confused. And maybe it would take you a minute to realize... Because they're in each other's scenes. Like on the stage, you kind of get it early on. You know, she's backwards, he's forwards. But uh, here it's just everybody all together. Like, happy, sad, happy, sad, happy, sad. Um, he's At the end of the film, he's walking out of the apartment for the last time singing his part and then Kathy is in the past on the stairs you know and so he's looking at that and having that moment of doubt and man I've been there brother it's it's it, the thing is ending but the good times the memories are still there and where'd they go you know or, or how long are we gonna chase the dragon to try to get that back right is it just a memory is that all it can be and the answer is probably. Love Leaves Leftovers. That is a poem that somebody shared with me recently that I will not read aloud to protect myself from falling apart here. So anyway, that is the end of the last five years. I do need you to like it. It's a great musical, but really just go ahead and listen to the album on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your music. Uh, even if it's playing in your town, don't go see it. I will go through the rankings one more time here. Uh, these are the songs in order of quality, according to Chris. A Summer in Ohio, Shiksa Goddess, See I'm Smiling, Still Hurting, Goodbye Until Tomorrow slash I Could Never Rescue You, The Next 10 Minutes, A Miracle Would Happen slash When You Come Home to Me, If I Didn't Believe in You, Climbing Uphill slash Audition Sequence, I Can Do Better Than That, Moving Too Fast, A Part of That, Nobody Needs to Know, The Shmuel Song. This concludes our discussion of the last five years. Let me put on my armor. I'm about to talk about Hades Town. Here we go. I'm going to use the restroom first. Maybe that'll help. And we're back. Boy, oh boy. I, I am so reluctant to talk about Hadestown that I ended up flossing my teeth after I used the restroom. This is not the time of day a person should be flossing their teeth. Uh, it, there's uh, some witchcraft, some magic that Hadestown does on my feelings. Uh, really always, but really now. And... Uh, it's similar to uh, how what Sunday in the the song Sunday from Sunday in the Park with George was doing to me uh, around the time I did that episode, which is like ugh. It, and I was listening to the soundtrack a lot while I was at school, and you know it's crazy to think that was only in you know March or April of this of last year, like only like a year ago. It feels like a lifetime ago. Uh, and I, I would hear that song, I would hear Sunday on my way to class and be like, no, I gotta turn this off. I cannot have an eye full of tears, eyes full of tears in school, you know, this is not the time for this. So, uh, you know, got some time put aside here. And again, I'm not, I'm not bragging that I'm a person who cries. It's just that I am one and Hadestown makes it happen. Along with Pippin and Parade, Hadestown is one of the best musicals of all time. Not written by Stephen Sondheim. And yeah, Hamilton too, whatever. But everybody already knows that. Pippin, Parade, Hadestown, Hamilton. These are the ones. Um, Hadestown is written by a folk artist. It is not written 
by a musical theater artist. It's written by Anais Mitchell. Now, this could go either way. I'm of two minds about this. Um, I do think that there are subtleties to musical theater uh, that you do. You need somebody, at least somebody who loves it or is a student of it to get it right. I get very cranky about people that just say like, hey, I'm gonna write a musical, that'd be funny. <laughs> I actually did a, uh, got paid for this reading, oh fuck man, in Malibu at this mansion that I cannot fucking believe. It was a Malibu mansion overlooking the goddamn ocean. And it was a really rich real estate guy that had written a musical that was endless and terrible. And it was his first time trying to do anything like that. And he had all of these rich people sycophants there cheering him on at this reading. And yeah, no, I mean, you can't just fucking barge into musical theater and write a musical. You have to love them first, right? And I think that Anais Mitchell does, I mean, on the strength of this being so good, but also she worked with Rachel Chavkin. Um, Chavkin, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, but, you know, who is a, bra a musical theater person, so... Um, let's do a little history here. Anais Mitchell um, grew up in Vermont as a Quaker. So I am predisposed to like this person. I've never been to Vermont, but I have warm ideas about what Vermont is. And I have been to Quaker meetings. My grandmother was a Quaker. Um, I'm not a huge fan of Christianity, but boy, I, I, am, I feel nice about the Quakers. If I had to be a Christian, if someone put a gun to my head saying, you had better be Christian, like, uh, you know, there was a new Spanish Inquisition, but they let you choose the denomination, I would become a Quaker. Uh, the reason that I went to those meetings first, in the first place, was because 9-11 happened, and my grandma thought that there was going to be a draft. And uh, she, in the old days, you could be registered as a conscientious objector if you went to Quaker meetings, and you could prove you'd been to them. Anyway, enough about Quakers. Anais Mitchell. Quaker from Vermont. She starts writing folk songs at a very young age, releasing albums. And if you like folk music and you haven't heard her solo albums, I would highly recommend these. Uh, a great place to start is her Tiny Desk concert. She has a really satisfying, unconventional singing voice, and the voice of her writing is also very satisfying. Um, it reminds me a lot of the first two uh, Tallest Man on Earth albums, and to a lesser extent, Fleet Foxes. Uh, in the sense where, like, the music itself uh, really feels like it was composed out in the elements of nature under some fucking weeping willow. And maybe was even partly composed by the weeping willow and the wind and the nature, you know? And I, I also enjoy the more cerebral folk music of Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen. But this is a specific other thing. And, um... You know, one of her early albums from 2003 is actually a little bit more political... Um, and it really made me nostalgic for the uh, anti-war spirit of the left because it really does seem like it's uh, these are protest songs about the wars we were in at the time in 2003. And she was a spring chicken at that point. She was, you know, what is she, 22 or something? Anyway, at the age of 25, she debuts her new folk opera in Vermont in 2006. It's called Hades Town, and she calls it the story of Orpheus and Eurydice set in post-apocalyptic Depression-era America. And it's a, a DIY theater project is what it's supposed to be. 
Now, um, do y'all know the story of Orpheus and Eurydice? That's what Hades Town is. It's that myth. It's the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, the old Greek myth. Uh, which, you know, uh, but sort of expanded to have uh, these resonances that you never thought it could have. Uh, which, you know, just a brief primer on that myth. Uh, Orpheus is this fucking liar-playing uh, musician, and he loves Eurydice, and Hades thinks that Eurydice is very hot and attractive, and he steals her away uh, to Hades, the, to the, the underworld. And so Orpheus has to go on this journey to rescue her from the underworld, it's, but he has to take a, a circuitous route. He can't just go through. It's just like Dante in the Inferno. He's got to go around. And uh, th when he gets to, the, he makes the rocks cry by singing and they let him through. And when he gets her, uh, he's like, let's go back. But then Hades is like, uh, she can only go back. I'll make a deal with you. You can take her out of here, but only if she walks behind you and you don't turn around and look at her during the whole walk. And so they do this. And then she's like, Orpheus, look at me. What the fuck? Look at me. I love you. Why? Look at me. And then he won't look at her. And then she's like, oh, I'll stay, stay. And then he turns around, please. And then he, I guess, <laughs> I don't remember what happens. I guess he looks at her. And so then she's stuck there forever. And then he cries and makes flowers bloom, I guess. And also Persephone is part of the story too. Uh, anyway, uh, and she's really related to the, the seasons. Uh, and uh, if you read the Ovid uh, Metamorphosis, this is uh, he his telling of the story is what um, I think what blossomed in it into um, the way that we see it now. I also recently saw the play Eurydice by Sarah Rule, which did another interesting thing with the story. So anyway, uh, that's in 2006, her DIY theater project, Hades Town. She revises it and puts it up again in 2007, but after that, she doesn't know what to do with this thing because she did it in Vermont and it's done. So she makes a concept album in 2010. Uh, I would say the entry point for this show is uh, complicated, but you know, my if you are my ideal listener, which is somebody that does not like musicals and is uh, at, ripe for being convinced to like them, your entry point, I am going to prescribe for you this 2010 concept album because it is amazing. Um, and it's not, uh, it doesn't feel really like a, 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 like a, a soundtrack. It feels like an album just with different singers. There's a couple moments like Way Down Hades Town where it does kind of feel stagey, but it really is just, and it, and it employs the talents of Justin Vernon, the lead singer of Bon Iver. And it's not Bon Iver for those of you who uh, only read those words and don't know what I'm talking about. Also, Ani DeFranco, uh, who, who is, I remember, being famous in the 90s. Uh, and the Hayden Triplets, uh, they're in there. And uh, th this album got great reviews. They called it genre-defying, and they were right. So, um, yeah, check that out. There's Obviously, there's two albums of Hadestown. There's the original cast recording of the musical, and then there's this 2010 concept album. If you're confused about which one, do the one with the picture of a sad-looking drawing of a woman on the cover. And not a picture of somebody holding a rose. That's the way to go. In the year 2012, Anna East Mitchell goes and sees uh, Natasha and the Great Comet of 1812. This is a show I know nothing about. People rave about it. Um, everybody I've talked to uh, that's been to New York uh, and saw that uh, says that it's, like, amazing. Uh, so I'm curious to see it, but I haven't seen it. She seeks out the director of that. That director is Rachel Chavkin, which I don't know if I'm saying it wrong, but I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, this... Uh, this is uh, a great 
idea for these two ladies to work together. This is this marriage of writer and director is lightning in a bottle. And all that I know about Rachel Chavkin is just the way that uh, you know Hades Town is staged and conceived. I think that it speaks to the, her talent because she, you know, uh, reportedly she has a diverse style and has no touchstone aesthetic. Like you can't watch a show by her and be like, well, classic Chavkin. You know, it's not like a Fosse thing where everyone has the same fucking hat and does the same hand uh, position. So one can assume that then she took this material, this amazing material by Anna East Mitchell and knew exactly what it needed and was right. So I think, you know, with what little I know about her, I think we can expect great things from this Rachel Chavkin. I did see a TikTok video at some point trying to cancel her for racism. And the argument th seemed a bit thin to me. I don't remember the details, but whatever, man. Uh, and side note, I wish I had kept my musical theater interests far away from my TikTok algorithm. It's some they somehow got in there. I have no interest in watching musical theater wine mom content on TikTok. When I go to TikTok, I want to see sophomoric ridiculousness. I want to see pranks and I want to see children swearing. I want to see animals fighting. Uh, you know, whatever. Uh, I had no interest in seeing him uh, Hades Town on stage because I heard uh, the concept album way before it was ever on, uh, you know, on Broadway, and I loved that album so much. It was given to me on a burn CD actually in 2012 by my friend Francesca, that I worked with, and when I listened to it, it was a eureka moment for me because it seemed to be doing the thing that I had been so hungry to see or hear in musicals, and something that I wanted to do myself and never never quite accomplished and that's telling a story in the form of a musical or at least a form that is at least musical theater adjacent but also but doing it with music that is good that you wouldn't be embarrassed to have on in your car while your indie friends your alt friends sat in the back seat you know that's what that accomplishes to me it's you know i and i'm between two worlds here you know I, I, I went down two separate paths simultaneously. I'm a musical theater Broadway baby, but then I also at an early age got into things like Elliot Smith and uh, fucking Wilco and Built to Spill and then later on fucking the Mountain Goats and the Fleet Foxes. So I think it's like, it's the, it's the marriage of those. It's my worlds collided when I heard this. And I don't understand why it's so hard to do that. <laughs> I don't understand why rock operas end up sounding like rock that no one would ever like like Michael McDonald kind of sounding shit. Um, this is a folk opera, and it's it's so good. <laughs> I'm gushing about Hadestown. I think I liked it kind of due to how non-musical theater it was, and so when I did hear just a piece of the original cast recording, I heard it backstage when I was doing the musical Violet. Somebody in the cast played some of it, and I was like, ugh, no thank you. Because it sounded to me at the time like a little bit like, hey there, <laughs> fellas. Uh, and I, it's like, I don't need to see this uh, perversion. I'm going to stick with the 2010 concept album. I don't want it to be ruined. Cut to the year 2022. The touring cast of Hadestown comes to Los Angeles. The Amundsen Theater. I enter the ticket lottery on Today Ticks. And hey, I win it. I go to see it. I go see it with somebody I'm early dating who happens to be the person that I recently broke up with. I am floored by it. Because not only does it depart from the original album without, without taking anything away, it adds so much more. 
It somehow retains its original theme, but puts in a whole new dimension. And it is like, this has to be the least corny song, the least corny story ever told about love. And that's a bold statement, but I, I, I really think that. It's a simple story about love that is corniness free. And it's because it's so simple and it leaves so much room for the audience to draw their own parallels and come to their own conclusions, which I did. And I'll tell you, like, I, I have to say, and I don't want, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to be overly negative when I say this, but the friends that I have that are in musical theater, my musical theater compatriots who I talked to about this show, they had the wrong things to say about it. Um, they would, they would talk about like, well, I liked this performer, I liked that performer, and you know, that song was okay. That one really didn't work. It's a pet peeve of mine, right? You know, that didn't work. Like there's a thing that works that we all understand and it's not just a matter of taste. I, I bet I've also noticed that I have said that a million times throughout the course of doing this podcast, so I'm a hypocrite, but I think this gets to a larger idea maybe that informs this podcast as a whole. Like there's not a lot of consensus on what musical theater is supposed to be and how it should be perceived, analyzed, taught, uh, if it should be taught. There are people whose work have elevated it to an art form in the past century, and we all, all know who they are, and we all, we all know who they aren't, you know? But there's a large swath of the population of America and the world who still dismiss it as unserious, crowd-pleasing. Maybe because that's how it started, maybe because those are the ones that still make the most money. It's hard to blame them because those are largely the ones that are allowed to be on Broadway anymore. And, you know, it's not, uh, Broadway is not an artistic community because musicals are too fucking expensive. But because there's no lack of, con of consensus on how to deal with musicals, whether they should be dealt with seriously. Uh, people who work in musical theater, and maybe it's just in LA, maybe the ones I've met, they tend to analyze shows they see on a very surface level about aesthetics. Like whose voice was fierce and how it looked. Um, without just kind of taking an analytical sort of fucking knife to it, uh, which I think it deserves. I mean, so at least something, it's definitely something like this deserves that. Because, uh, you know, I'm not dumb, right guys? Like I... <laughs> I, I, I like a critical analysis of things and I, but so why, why not do that for musicals? Why, why do that for a, a, a an Arthur Miller play or a, or a, a novel and not for this? I think you should. Let's go through the show. Let's go through Hades Town. Uh, the first thing that you notice about Hades Town is a sort of timelessness. And I think, uh, I think that's why it's going to really stand the test of time. Hades Town is not tethered to any specific meaning or metaphor or trend. Uh, I mean, it's telling, you know, an ancient fucking Greek myth, but it's also, it's sort of has the flavor of depression era South. Everybody's sort of wearing uh, over uh, overalls and fucking suspenders and talking in a certain way. But that is, uh, you know, it, it's, there's no references or things that connect it back to that, really. And uh, what's so smart about this and so meaningful is because they say right in the first song, it's an old song. It's an old tale from way back when. It's a sad song, that's for sure. Uh, 
And in that first song, you meet all the characters. Um, the narrator is Hermes. And uh, so I watched a bootleg YouTube video that was kind of a cut and paste job. What they did was uh, they they synced the OCR with uh, bootleg video of the show. And so you really get a feel for it. I mean, it's exactly how I remembered it on stage. The only, you know, one of the differences is that, like, I wish I could have seen Andre De Shields play Hermes because that shit was great. The guy I saw was fine. He was like a little skinny white guy and he was okay, but it wasn't this. I, I, Andre De Shields is uh, very great. He He's the whiz. <laughs> and his voice uh, feels very um, cozy to me because I played the whiz in the whiz in a mostly white cast of the whiz in middle school in seventh grade. And so I, he was the part that I was playing. So I listened to that soundtrack a lot and I heard his voice. Um, so you wanted to meet the wizard. His singing voice sounds exactly the same. However many, you know, 50 years later. So, um, I mean, if you have cursory knowledge of Greek mythology and how that works, or like you, you know, do give yourself a quick reminder. I think this will help you in watching the show Hades Town, but it's not necessary. Even if you don't know the names, but you have a general idea of, you know, the, the, the weather is connected to these celestial personalities that control them and are responsible for them. And, you know, uh, what's his name is in charge of the ocean and you know, what's his nuts is in charge of the sky. And, you know, so they, they introduce the fates, which are these three women singing in harmony. Uh, they're always singing in the back of your mind. That'll be important later. The fates. Uh, and we meet Persephone, who is the wife of Hades. And when she comes up to Earth from the underground, from the underworld, that's when it's fucking fall and spring. And then when she goes away, it's fucking winter. Hang on. I got that wrong, didn't I? No, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Summer and spring. And then uh, winter and fucking fall. She spends half the year, yeah, she brings the seasons and, you know, and of course in olden times, winter is death in more ways than one. When that winter comes, you're fucked. I hope you saved enough berries in your fucking cave. Um, you know what's funny is, and they introduce Hades also, but they're way up on a platform. They're up on a, like these thrones. When I saw it for the first time, I was way up in the balcony of the Amundsen and I did not see them sitting there. And so when they got introduced, I was like, what, where are they? Because it was in front of a fucking speaker. A speaker was in front of them. I didn't see it. By the way, I went and saw the show a second time two days later. I saw it with my stepson. I won the lottery again and went and saw it with him. It was really, it was kind of uh, seismic in my life when I saw it. So, yeah, um, it's an old song. It's a sad song. <clears throat> and they announced that it's a tragedy. But we're going to sing it again. Uh, and they announced the ensemble too. The, the, the ensemble is small. It has this one big gawky dude in it. <laughs> and uh, that would have given me hope if I'd seen that as a musical theater kid to you know learn to dance a little bit more. And I've, that's actually been retained in most versions. I wonder if there's a, they say in the notes, make sure one of the people in your, your ensemble is a uh, awkwardly tall white man. Uh, so yeah, if I took some dance classes, maybe I could get that part or be too old. I talk a lot on this podcast about parts that I want to play, but I don't really go on auditions anymore. I'm a singing waiter now. It's all why the struggle, why the strain. Orpheus and Eurydice. Um, so the, all, the, the, this story is also told in opera form by Offenbach, an opera that I was in 
in col uh, not college high school the arts high school I was in the opera class for a while it's a shitty opera it's where the fucking that's from that from Offenbach my nephew Harold at the time that I saw this was really into Greek myths and so I told my sister that she should go take her son to go see it and uh, when he first watched it, uh, I guess in the first act, he was bothered by the, that it wasn't true to the original source material. He was like, she's supposed to be bitten by a snake. But then uh, he was on board by the end. And then he got himself a trumpet and tries to play that opening riff all the time. The... Um, the second song in the show is called Any Way the Wind Blows. It's not in the original concept album. They wrote it for the show. It's a gorgeous song. And it signals you to the fact that we're really not in a normal musical here or even a folk opera. And that this is a song that you might actually listen to. And it's very sparse and it's very pretty. And yeah, it sounds like a, you know, a fucking Gillian Welch folk song. Uh, there's, and it's all about that there's no seasons anymore. There's no spring and no fall. The seasons are all fucked. And uh, Orpheus announces that he's going to fix it all with his song. He's working on this song. And yeah, the Bonnie Vare guy, uh, Justin Vernon, you know, uh, he sings on the album very much like he does as the Bonnie Vare guy, which is uh, many vocals at the same time in harmony, but also crucially with the uh, octaves, like he sings the two octaves, the high and the low. And um, so that really, uh, th that's interesting because Orpheus is a musician. He's a music man. <laughs> He's a what? He's a what? And uh and the, they retain that a little bit in the show. Like when he talks, the ensemble harmonizes with him. It's, a, it's really beautiful and it's really good. It's really smart. The kid that I saw do Orpheus, play Orpheus on stage, and the guy on the original cast recording, his voice feels magic. And um, so you buy it. It's not just... It's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty voice that's not just pretty, you know? It's a sort of uh, delicate falsetto that feels like you could shatter it with the like it like glass um and i don't know how they do that i don't know how they accomplish that with that with the melody that, that he sings the la 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 the way that um that sounds like it actually could make flowers grow i, I believe it i don't know it's very good. Uh, the Wedding Song is the opening song on the concept album. And I think that the uh, whole vibe of that song emerges more heavily as the theme of the concept album. That se when I first heard it, it seemed to me to be a metaphor uh, for what it is to be in love with an artist and have to walk away from him, denying yourself love in favor of security. Because Orpheus is a poor musician and Eurydice is hungry. And that is retained in the show, but there's just so much more to it. It's so much bigger. But the concept album, I think, in the wedding song, as its inaugural song, which is her just saying, lover, tell me if you're able, who's going to lay the wedding table? And who's going to do all these things? Who's going to buy the wedding band? And he says, oh, when I sing my song, all the birds will sing along. Like, it's all of these sort of uh, ethereal nature things. And it's, but it's all going to come from his song, his art. And uh, so, yeah. And like I mentioned, the Sarah, Sarah Rule play, Eurydice, you know, the, the, the way that they did that was they, the, the, the play is actually more about Eurydice's experience in the underworld reconnecting with her deceased father. Uh, 
and them having um, the relationship as father and daughter down there. And Orpheus is kind of a, uh, uh, you know, a navel-gazing artistic dick. And uh, so when she walks out of hell with him, she's go like, hey, Orpheus, so that he will turn around because she wants to stay in the underworld. Uh, the song Epic One is goddamn gorgeous. Again, simple and moving. It's got that theme in it. Um, and uh, there's a simplicity to Orpheus and Eurydice's love story that is so well drawn and unique. And um, I guess maybe it's like if you're a romantic type, which I guess I am, and you want to be fooled into thinking that such things are possible and that you can be surprised by a simple love like that, that things can feel really sweet and really right with no apparent caveats. <sighs> I think that they, uh, you know, the musical does that. It, it presents that. And it, it, it uh, successfully makes you love Orpheus and Eurydice and their love. And also um, just who they are. Like, um, it's, it's a story that's not really represented much in musical theater or really anywhere in film. Like, these are young, poor, small-town people having young, poor, small-town love. And they're, they're people that I've met, you know? Uh, I, you know, I, like, when I spent time uh, in Redlands and Yukaipa, these are, like, big-hearted young people playing guitars and bumming cigarettes. Uh, you know, and uh, people from small towns with, uh, that don't have two dimes to rub together, but they love each other. And they're young. <laughs> uh, you don't see that. <laughs> <laughs> very much i don't know man i don't think you do the song living it up on top is when persephone comes and she makes spring happen and it's a party um you know and she's played by amber gray who i got the uh opportunity to see because she was in the touring cast and she also originated the role on broadway and she's so good um and she comes and they it's uh they 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 they, they worship her Right? Because she's there to bring them this joy, these seasons. But the whole thing is that if no one takes too much, there will always be enough. She will always fill our cups and we will always raise them up. And it's, uh, it's nice. It's, a, it's sort of the, the way that life should be. And then I think that's actually the next line about, you know, the world we dream of and the world we have or something to that effect. They made t-shirts with that on it. I didn't bother to write it down here. I just got a little uh, moved right there talking about that. The political dimension. It's not a political dimension. It's dumb to call it a political dimension Dimension because it's not. It's a, uh, a the th uh, I don't know, the humanistic theme. Ah, anyway, shut up. Way down Town. <laughs> Slightly different lyrics here than in the concept album. And... In the concept album, in this song, Eurydice is kind of convinced uh, and impressed by Hades and Hades Town. So, you know, you know, it seems like he owns everything. Or like, what did she say? Everybody dresses in clothes so fine. Everybody's pockets are weighted down. Everybody's sipping ambrosia wine. It's a gold mine in Hades Town. Like she's kind of uh, thinks it's intriguing, but then he. Uh, Orpheus is saying, no, everybody's hungry, everybody's tired, everybody's slaves by the sweat of his brow. And, uh, you know, so then, you know, what is Hades Town, right? What does that mean? Uh, who is Hades? What is Hades Town in this big metaphor? And smartly, brilliantly, they, they keep it very vague. 
and a lot of people want to connect it to more contemporary concerns and more on that later but I think that uh, it reminds me a lot of the movie Sorry to Bother You and uh, the worry-free where it's like um, times are hard here and so let's sell basically ourselves and work in a fucking, you know, Amazon factory uh, where, we're, you know, well, you'll, ha you'll be secure but you will not be free. It really is just work in general, right? And I do think that, you know, there is something to be said for the human power of work and that you know it's, i'm not saying nobody should work <laughs> but this uh the, the that it's that kind of work it's the oh god whatever man the wage is nothing and the work is hard it's a graveyard in Hades town so um the wind theme sequence right uh anyway the wind blows or uh, and that the, the, the they reprise that and that whole sequence where Orpheus is finishing working on his song and um, Eurydice is like trying to gather shit for the storm. Uh, it's heartbreaking to me because she's hungry. There's a gathering storm and he's just, I got to finish this song. And she's like, okay, finish your song. Please hurry. And it reminded me, I guess I mentioned Fleet Foxes a couple of times, but it reminds me of the story of uh, the album Helplessness Blues by the Fleet Foxes, or Fleet Foxes, I guess you just call them. There's no the, who cares? But the story behind the making of that album, um, the, the, the principal songwriter and lead singer was writing it and uh, was got so obsessed with it that he his partner left him because she was like, I can't be with you because you, you're just c consumed by this thing. And uh, then when she heard the album, which really is a masterpiece, I mean, particularly the title song and uh, a lot of the songs in it are just uh, really, really beautiful. Uh, she went back to him. <clears throat> and, you know, this is kind of what this reminds me of, you know, Orpheus with his guitar working on a song. And anyway, Hades comes and tries to sort of... Uh, well, first he argues with Persephone, and Hades is not really a villain, you know? <clears throat> I uh, And just like he really isn't in mythology, right? If somebody has to rule the underworld, there's the world of the dead. Hades is not Lucifer, and the underworld is not hell. It depends on who you ask. I mean, Achilles uh, said that it's better to uh, serve in heaven or than rule in hell, something to that effect. But... Uh, you know, in this world, the underworld is not exactly the world of the dead. It kind of is because it's where you go to sell out and work your ass off and then you're kind of dead. But it's not that like you go there when you're dead. They have that song in Hades where they're like, keep your head, keep your head low. Keep your head, keep your head low. It's a little too close to look down, look down, do, 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 do from Les Mis. It's not a big deal. I like this uh, 7,000 times better than I like Les Mis overall. But, uh, I don't know, this just always hits my ears wrong, because it's like, remember, look down from Les Mis? So Hades and Persephone are not seeing eye to eye anymore. He's trying to impress her, and he's lonely when she's not there. But the things that he's building, all of this uh, industrial shit that he's building in the underworld does not impress her. It's, it ain't right, and it ain't natural. They're growing apart. So yeah, what is Hades? Is it, it's a corruption, selfishness, capitalism? He's instituting all of these unnatural solutions to substitute human connection, right? He's putting on all these bright lights and shit. 
and all of these busy heating ducts. And, uh, you know, you're dead when you're there, or dead to the world anyway, is what they say. And while Orpheus is figuring out in writing his song that the gods have forgotten the song of their love, he's figuring that out, what we're seeing. <clears throat> Eurydice, at the same time, is getting the shit kicked out of her by the fates. And uh, that's really heartbreaking, too. Where the, the way that that stage is so beautiful, where she's walking like in the wind, and the fates are like pulling her bag and all of her shit away from her. It's like, fuck you, the fates. Those three ladies singing inside your head. But they're inside your head. That's the thing. You got to remember. And I think I have more on that later, so I won't talk about that yet. Eurydice's dilemma. And I think the part in listening to this album that first made me like sort of sit up and pay attention was um, this sequence through uh, Hey Little Songbird and Gone I'm Gone and When the Chips Are Down. Uh, it's hard to watch, man. Uh, especially as somebody who is a, I always cringe when I say this, but it's true, is an artist. Um, it's hard to watch. It reminded me of a little scene movie called The Future by Miranda July. It's one of her, uh, I don't think it did as well as Me and You and Everyone We Know and uh, the other more recent one. But uh, The Future, where it's about a woman who leaves a relationship in po that's in poverty and uh, wants security in a house and so goes with somebody and, and uh, somebody with money that she's not attracted to and doesn't like and isn't in love with. And so, yeah, the, the seduction of Hey Little Songbird, it's creepy. Um, Hades' voice, the whole thing about it is that it's impossibly low. Hey Little Songbird. Give me a song. <laughs> I'm a busy man who can't stay long. And uh, says that people get mean when the chips are down. That last verse of the song is interesting, right? Because he's talking about, um, you know, after he says, oh, he, uh, he's talking her out of her relationship with Orpheus. He's some kind of poet and he's penniless, blah, blah, blah. But at the end, he's like, look all around you. See how the vipers and vultures surround you. They'll pick you clean. They'll, you know, et cetera. And it's like, uh, yeah, people get mean when the chips are down. It's this idea. That's how it works. That's how, uh, that's how power corrupts is this idea that you should be afraid of your neighbor and that you should uh, have locks on your doors and ring cameras. I have one. Whoops. But like that, that's, that's what we need uh, protection from and it gets into obviously gets into that deeper later with uh, why we build the wall. The song When the Chips Are Down is better when the Hayden triplets do it on the concept album because they blend. Because they are sisters. In fact, they are triplets. And their voices blend together perfectly. They are uh, from a lineage. Their father was a, a famous folk artist. One of them is married to Jack Black, longtime uh, Jack Black's wife. Uh, somebody tried to explain to me when I was watching the terrible film uh, Sgt. Pepper and the Lonely Hearts Club Band. Uh, which uh, maybe we'll have an episode on that at some time when I'm feeling like spreading negative energy. Uh, that had the Bee Gees in it, and this they're singing Beatles songs. And this woman tried to say to me that the songs sound better sung by the Bee Gees than they do by the Beatles because they're brothers and they blend well. That's the most blasphemous shit I've ever heard. Anyway, uh, the song Gone, I'm Gone, you know. That line... I think is when I got it. When she says, Orpheus, my heart is yours. Always was and will be. It's my gut I can't ignore. Orpheus, I'm hungry. It's her decision to go to the underworld. 
they flip this song with when the chips are down on stage and i think it's smart because it's the fates talking her into it and again the fates are the voices inside of her head it makes sense theatrically for them her to sing they sing that song and then she's gone and it's sad when she says it when she says i'm gone because she's on her way down to hades town away from orpheus and then it gets to the song Wait For Me, which is the hit. That's the song that everybody likes from the show for good reason. It's beautiful and it's staged beautifully. That piano riff is outstanding. Um, I'm not going to play it here on the piano because that sounds like that would take a lot of time to figure it out and pick it out. But it goes diddly diddly doo, diddly diddly doo, diddly diddly doo, diddly diddly doo. Reminds me of the Succession uh, theme song. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, Orpheus has to take the long way down, just like Dante and his buddy Virgil. Can't just go through the one gate there because you're a poor guy. You got to go the fucked up way that nobody can ever make it through. But he makes it through. Um, I liked the song Wait For Me when I first heard it. But the way that they expanded on stage is incredible with those fucking lanterns and uh, the way that it turns into a crash boom bang. Not too many crash boom bangs in this show, but that, that one's earned, baby. The act one finale is why we build the wall, which is probably the best song in the show. And something that's irritating is that people mistake this as a veiled Donald Trump critique. And I think that cheapens it. It's similar to uh, what I think I talked about already uh, that people do with a uh, Bob Dylan song where they're like, oh, now there's hard rain. That's a song about atomic rain. No, man, it's not about atomic rain. It's just about hard rain, man. Uh, if you apply it to just one fucking, you know, p political moment, first of all, it uh, it makes it uh, age not as well. And it takes away the profundity of it because it's just a, it's a wall. That's all. It's about building a wall. And of course, it applies to what Trump was doing. Trump wanted to build a wall and started to build a wall and Trump sucks. But hey, you know, this song is old. I was rocking out to this song during the Obama administration. And it was written through the Bush administration. And it's a it's a great song because it's the darkest game of the green grass grew all around, all around ever. Why do we build the wall? We build the wall to keep us free. How does the wall keep us free? The wall keeps out the enemy and we build the wall to keep us free. That's why we build the wall. Who do we call the enemy? The enemy who do we call the enemy? And the enemy is poverty and the wall keeps out the enemy and we build the wall to keep us free. You know, you see what I mean? They, they add to it each time. Like the green grass go all around. Another another version uh, example of this was the Butter Battle Book by Dr. Seuss. Which, yes, this is a book written during the Cold War. And this is a book that you could easily say is about the nuclear arms race. But it's actually much larger than that. It applies to the micro and the macro. It's actually really just a, vo a, a, a book about escalating tensions. In war, yeah, but also in your house, <laughs> maybe. Maybe we're just uh, or, or in your uh, on your street. Everyone's trying to build a bigger and bigger bomb until we destroy everybody. So the song can feel political. I don't think it has to be. It's not a political song. It's a song about uh, people. It's a song about power. It's a song about fear. It's a weird song to close out the first act with, but it should, it makes sense. The act two opening is Our Lady of the Underground, which was the song I skipped the most on the concept album. Ani DeFranco sang it. She played Persephone. 
Um, I like it though now because it's actually saying, uh, you know, it's all like, you know, let's have some, don't be sad because there's a crack in the wall. Everything may be fucked, but look at there. There's, there's, there's a crack in the wall. We see a little bit of Eurydice's experience in the underworld, and then she sings the song Flowers. And I think Flowers is where the heart of the story lies. And um, Anna East Mitchell sings it on the album, of course. Anna East Mitchell plays Eurydice in the concept album. And I just love her voice so much. I love the song Flowers because um, she couldn't keep going the way she was going with Orpheus on land. Um, because, and she wanted to be anesthetized, you know, she wanted to not feel these extreme feelings of, uh, hunger and heartbreak and all these things and love. Ultimately, it was too much to have that love. And she wanted to just, she wanted to just, uh, stream some movies and get some DoorDash delivered. Which is my version of that, I guess. Because it makes me reflect on the times that I went into the underworld. I would say, for me, it's the late 2010s. You know, I have this weirdly encyclopedic memory of the years of my life. But the years of the late 2010s bleed together. And it's because that's the era of my life that, that I found safety and security. I started becoming very suburban. And I stopped being creative. You know? I, you know, I was writing as part of my job. I was writing children's songs. But I stopped writing any songs for myself at all uh, between 2013 and 2019. I wrote nothing. I was in the underworld. I, was, I wanted to go to sleep, and I was asleep. And now those years have no flavor to me when I look back on them. When uh, Eurydice, uh, when Orpheus comes back, uh, I want to cry when he, he says, come home with me to her. It's such a quick moment, but it's the first thing that he said to her in the bar. Um, and then, uh, you know, the song that I opened this podcast with, uh, nothing changes. <laughs> it's an acapella trio song and it's fucked, you know, <laughs> especially with, so the fates, yeah, now it's time to talk about that. Like when you know that the fates are not just three asshole women, uh, that are saying a bunch of really mean shit to you, but that they're, they're the voices in the back of your mind. Because you want to, every time they come in and slither in, you like, you want to say, hey, shut the fuck up, fates. Stop saying that negative shit and messing it. Leave Orpheus and Eurydice alone. They just, they found each other. You have to remind yourself that they are the internal voices. They're like the serious version of the Bad Idea Bears from um, Avenue Q. So when they're saying, why the struggle, why the strain, why make trouble, why make scenes, you know, that's, that, that's actually Orpheus's thoughts. And when they're saying, uh, you know, life ain't easy, life ain't fair, you know, or go ahead, lay the blame. Wouldn't you have done the same in her shoes, in her skin? You know, that, those are Eurydice's thoughts, justifying doing something she knows she shouldn't do. The song, If It's True, um, was a song that I didn't really care about till I saw the stage version. Because they bring it in a totally different direction. It's not just a song of self-pity. It's a song of revolution. He doesn't just despair. He riles everybody up in the underworld and gets them to revolt. Because the, the song takes a turn where he says, but who were they to say what the truth is anyway? And those words were already in there, but they were kind of just lying on their side. I think when 
uh, Justin Vernon sang them. Because, you know, he's not a performer. And it's hard to have a song, you know, put a story into a song. And I, again, I just think Rachel Chavkin is just the perfect person to do this. And I don't, and I can say that without knowing anything else about her. I just think that she made that sing because she, she infused it with theater. She gave that song a turning point. <clears throat> so, yeah, the only song I really don't like is uh, How Long. And I think because it's a little tedious and it's a husband and wife, it's a dialogue song. And uh, I hate to do this because I love Hades Town so much, but I, I, I do need to call the lyrics police. Uh, officers. All right. So in, in how long uh, the, the thing, they repeat it so many, like you could have let it go by if it was once, but they keep saying like, uh, you don't fit in my bed. It burns like a fire in a pit in my bed and it turns like a bird on a spit in my bed i don't like that i think it sucks it's it i don't like it uh hades in this case is daniel plainview right from there will be blood he's a uh, lonely cynical he's lo he's lonely at the top persephone doesn't really love him anymore and he doesn't know how to love her because he's ruling hades and persephone uh, you know, I think in this song, maybe, and just the ensuing, you know, parts or the show in general, I was reminded that things need to die to be reborn, right? Even the earth itself, winter and spring, you know, that's a death and a rebirth. And everything, there is a season, right? You know, I'm currently in the bleak midwinter of my discontent, but spring will come. You know, it's literally winter right now. There's historic L.A. rain that is flooding everything and breaking the bumper off my car. It's not going to be forever. Flowers are going to bloom. Epic number two is really beautiful. So my friend Pam had the nerve to say that uh, the theme of this, the epic song um, that I, sang, I hummed before, la, 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 la. She, said, she said that it sounds like the Back to the Future theme. Whatever, man. You know, there's 12 notes in the chromatic scale and the, there are untold number of songs and some of these notes are going to cluster together sometime. I'm trying to fucking ruin that for me. Sorry if I ruined it for you, by the way. But uh, come on. Who cares? It's beautiful. The song cuts straight to my heart. I wonder if it's also because it's slightly reminiscent of Kiss from a Rose by Seal. <laughs> I think it's maybe because I have a personal association because in sixth grade, that song was the backdrop to my early romantic feelings to Donna, my sixth grade girlfriend. <sighs> so the song uh, in the song, when he says the, with the woman that he loves with nothing to lose. And this is where I lost my shit and I'm going to try not to lose my shit talking about it. Um, but when Persephone outstretched her hands to him, and of course the rose, you know, his song makes the rose come out and then they dance to lover's desire when they dance. You know, it's like I, I'm turning into my father and it's it's hard, you know, like uh, my father with the, the, the crying. I mean, there's centuries of storytelling that would have you believe that love in its simplest form is truly all that you need and that it can cleanse everything. <laughs> Okay, I'm good. Sorry, we're good. 
Whew. Okay, so uh, seeing Hades like break through um, his cynicism and his power and the detachment and the voice of the fucking fates, right, to expose himself and to love her, Persephone. It's it's hard to watch. Um, because it is something I tried to do a lot. Like many times. And it was not the right thing to do. At a certain point, it's not the right thing. And, uh, you know, I think maybe thinking that love is all you need is probably the same sentimental romantic impulse that has made countless people stay in romantic entanglements that were fundamentally hurting them. Physically or emotionally or otherwise. Like, um, it's actually not enough. <laughs> love is not all you need. So I, I think, you know, I was with someone that did not want to hurt me, but was really, really hurting me. And I was hurting her. So it's right that I'm gone. And uh, it's extra hard to watch this because I, I took her to see it. Uh, two springs ago, right? When this was new. Fuck. Do not watch Hades Town when you're going through a breakup, folks. I don't know if I'm going to keep any of this. This is uh, this is out of control. Um, I'm going to try to get back on track and finish up. But uh, anyway, it gets to Doubt Comes In. And that's the song where the story becomes a tragedy. Um, and we talked about the Sarah Rule play that has a spin on this. Um, Hades Town has an even fresher, far more resonant, devastating interpretation of uh turning around right um she's walking behind him he's he's not supposed to turn around or else he loses her and they have a song that is uh it's kind of similar to nobody needs to know from last five years although much much better in what it accomplishes because it is a song that is not pleasant to listen to like, I don't think anyone would hear that song in a bottle and say that's a pretty song. It's actually a s upsetting, dissonant song. And, uh, yeah. My God. People, the hounds you really got to dread is the one that howls inside your head. That's what Hermes tells him. You know, there's these fucking dogs guarding the gates of hell, but it's actually, it's going to be your own doubt that's going to fuck this up. And the people that he inspired, that Hades inspired in Hades, or sorry, that Orpheus inspired in Hades, to they're, they're, they're rooting for him. They say, um, show them the way the world can be. You know, trust yourselves. And they think they can do it. They say it to themselves. We can do it. But then the fucking voices... The fates, they, they get into his head, they're in his head and they, he starts thinking, who am I to think that I deserve her or who are you to think you deserve a person like this? I was so destroyed watching this bootleg, this YouTube video. I was crying and saying, fuck you to my TV. I mean, I just, I, I didn't want it to happen. I, it was, you know, it was one of those, I guess that's mark of a really good work of art where you want to you hope that the next time you see it, you can stop the horrible thing from happening. 
the way that this song is staged and the use of light is so fucking good. Um, and they're just the, the, the predicament and then the turning around. You know, in the past few months and, uh, I mean, in the past year, um, I, I was Orpheus and I was Eurydice. I, I was trying to walk out of hell with somebody, but that person fundamentally didn't believe that I was there walking behind her. And I don't think I couldn't convince her of it, but I was also the insecure one. I was also Orpheus and I, who didn't believe that I, I didn't believe that I deserved love and, you know. I couldn't keep myself from turning around and calling bullshit on it. So that moment, uh, that moment fucking sucks. And, uh, everybody has it. I think everybody with a heart. And I guess it's better to have a heart and have that moment than to not go through it but god sure doesn't fucking seem like it right now i think i'd like to be one of these gen z's kids i keep talking about who don't have relationships and just play video games and watch porn so you know the story has to reset itself because this is how it ends and they told us from the fucking beginning it was a tragedy and that things die and if love doesn't die, then, you know, eventually one of you dies and then it dies anyway. So winter's going to come and the fucking trees are going to die. And uh, it's a great ending because they reprise the opening number. Then they, they say what they said. They said it's a love song. It's a sad song, but we're going to sing it again. And, you know, we see her come back in the bar saying, has anyone got a match just like she did before? And... You know, we just, all of us as people are just going to keep cycling through the same fucking pain. But it's just as natural as this fucking flowers and the shit coming out of the ground. So, what are you going to do? You got no choice. This is fucked. This is what I said I didn't want to do and I'm doing it. And I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's possible to re-record <laughs> my discussion of the end of Town here. Uh, try not to cry during it. But here I am and this is what it is. And this the internet is permanent. So maybe I'll this will be the biggest mistake of my life posting this episode. I mean, I'm not afraid to be vulnerable. But I just, I, I do think I don't want to... Maybe people, you know, there is a fall off rate at a certain point in the podcast. Maybe people aren't listening this long into it. Well, one can hope. If you're listening to me right now, uh, help me. <laughs> Jesus. Motherfuck. Okay, so they tack on Raise My Cup at the end. And I say tack on because that's how it feels to me. It does seem strange on the stage. And I don't want to be one of these musical theater people that says it doesn't work. Um it really worked for me on the album. I think it's more of a closing track of a folk album than it is like a musical theater finale, which is maybe why they put it after the uh, curtain call. Because it's like new territory. Uh, and it's more along the lines of that original theme. Uh, they are raising their cup to Orpheus. Uh, raise our cups for the ones who bloom in the bitter snow. It's a song. It's, it's a tribute to the broke dick artist. And I think when I first heard it, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. 
because she's still in Hades. She stayed with Hades. And this is like a booby prize that Orpheus gets. You don't get the girl. She stays there. But she's raising her cup to you. <laughs> That's how I imagined it. But it's more than that, I think. You know, it's to all of the artists. Oh, boy. Okay, we made it to the end. Uh, this was uncomfortable. I hope it wasn't hard to listen to. Anyway, I'll say it one more time. Uh, if you're going through something like what I'm going through, remember two things. One, everybody goes through this. Even if they're not going through it right now and it seems like the whole world is having fun and you are uh, at home watching Hades Town and crying like a goddamn banshee. And what was number two again? I forget. Oh, it won't be forever. Spring is right around the corner, guys. Don't call her. That's uh, uh, <laughs> uh, wait, wait till the summer ends. Wait till the sun comes up and the flowers bloom. This won't be forever. Thank you for indulging me in this, guys. And um, here's an announcement that uh, don't hold me to this because this is actually just a casual idea that I had. And every time I have an idea for a new direction to the podcast, it doesn't end up happening. So I don't want to announce anything big. I'll just tell you uh, where my head is at here. So um, I there's a lot of musicals I haven't seen. A lot of big ones, actually, that I haven't seen. Like, I haven't really seen Wicked. That's weird, right? I also haven't really seen The Sound of Music. And these are, like, huge ones. So I thought maybe... Uh, I, I'll keep doing this the way I'm doing it, where I uh, reminisce and re-watch and revisit two musicals per week. But then maybe I'll have every other episode, or maybe every few episodes, I'll uh, dedicate one to... Um, doing like a, just a blind first time watch and talking about that and then maybe having a guest on or something um and I, I do want to still do that idea of uh you know bringing on a visual artist to talk about sunday in the park with george bringing on a uh, a christian to talk about jesus christ superstar bringing on a my uh st children's literature professor from cal state la to talk about into the woods so, anything is possible. The future is so bright. You gotta wear shades here. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I gotta... I don't even need to think about it. And I didn't think about it in advance. Here you go. So, goodbye until whenever. Goodbye until the next time I pod. And I have been struggling. I have been struggling here in North Hollywood. Can I, let me just say, I actually am fine. It is normal and natural to go through what I'm going through. What is not normal and natural is sharing it on the internet in the way that I'm sharing it. So I owe everybody an apology that I scoffed at, uh, that cried on their YouTube and or on their uh, TikTok channel. So I apologize to you folks. Thank you for listening. And until next time, please remember, the river sticks was a river of stones. <laughs>